You're, you're fine. You did a great job. Thank you, Janelle. Good job. Hey, good morning, everybody. So it's been... Um, sorry, i got to change the contrast on this. Uh, it has been like three weeks, uh, three Sundays, since we've gotten back into the Gospel of Luke. You know, we had the holidays take place and all. So today we're going to pick up our journey through the Gospel of Luke once again. Uh, and if you've got a Bible, uh, if you uh, want to follow along, we're going to be picking up in chapter 15 where we left off. Luke, remember, is one of four accounts of Jesus' life that's found in the Bible, in the New Testament section of your Bible. It's called the Gospel of Luke, like the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of John. And we call it the Gospel, uh, but we have to remember what, what Gospel is or what Gospel means. Who here remembers what Gospel means? Good news. That's right. That's exactly it. And, and it comes from the Greek word euangelion, uh, which means good news, but it wasn't, remember, a biblical term. This didn't originate within the confines of the Bible. It was borrowed from the Roman Empire. When Caesar had an important announcement to make to the citizens of the Roman Empire, it would, you know, like for instance, Rome has expanded its territory in Gaul there would be a euangelion. There would be a pronouncement of good news. Good news, Caesar has prevailed. That's what the idea behind it was. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus is the claim that God's kingdom will prevail and is even now at work in this world, impacting it for the better. The gospel is the invitation for humanity to return to our place as God's children, living lives that are submitted to his benevolent reign, unlike the reign of Caesar or any other government of this world, surrendered to the reign of God, his rule, extending his love and his grace into the world. That's the whole concept behind this. So all of Luke's account, as with all the other Gospels, all of these accounts are meant to reinforce, illustrate, and demonstrate the reality of God at work through Jesus, God's King or Messiah. That's what that is all about, the idea of this divine type of ruler who's come to set things right. Now, when we left off weeks ago, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were upset with him because if he was the Messiah, he had this annoying habit of hanging out with all the wrong people, uh, even befriending them. And he was attending their dinner parties, dinner parties with people who were, were not loyal to God's ways, weren't even loyal to the nation of Israel, collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, people who had walked away from God's purposes. The religious leaders of that time were perplexed by that, didn't appreciate it at all. So Jesus, to explain why he was doing that, began telling stories. And we left off last time, he was telling stories, two different stories uh, initially. He tells a whole string of them, but he began with two stories about lost things. Uh, a sh- shepherd whom, for whom one single sheep went uh, astray from the rest of the flock, and he uh, risked uh, everything to go and find and return that one sheep. And we read about a, a lost coin, which a woman went to great lengths to, to search for and to retrieve. And so we considered God's nature in light of our human uh, flaws and failures in light of our lostness, how he's intent on seeking and finding and returning us, humanity, to himself. So today, as we're going to pick back up, Jesus is going to continue telling stories. And the one that we're going to read today is probably one of the most familiar parables 
that he's told. Even a lot of idioms in our, in our present culture, you know, the fatted calf, terminology like that comes from this parable. It's a very familiar thing to us. It's traditionally called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, that's not a title that the text gives it, but that's just something that we have come to call it over the years throughout church history. I'm not sure about that, though. I mean, I've seen a lot of different titles given to this parable, the lost sons or the welcoming father. What really throws me in this is the meaning of the word prodigal, which we applied to it. Because, well, did anybody know what prodigal means? What, what do you think it might mean? What, what does prodigal mean? You'd think it would mean wayward, right? Or like going on, oh, like prodigy, like... No, no. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting one. I've never heard that before. So I'm going to go jot that down. Uh, pro- prodigal prodigal uh, means using resources freely and recklessly, being wastefully extravagant, or giving something on a lavish scale. And, and we'll see that when we read the text, that could be applied to one of the characters in this story, but really it's more appropriately applied to something else. Uh, the father's response to his sons. So I've titled this teaching Prodigal Grace because that's what we're going to see beautifully described by Jesus in this story. A love and a grace given to humanity on a lavish scale. So if you're there in Luke 15, we are going to uh, read this wonderful story. We'll be picking up where we left off three weeks ago uh, in chapter 15, verse 11. It says, to illustrate the point further, remember the point being, why is Jesus hanging out with people who are unrighteous? Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, it's really important that we stop right here and make sure we catch the deeply offensive nature of what has just transpired in these few sentences. I mean, you know, here's the thing. As Westerners, we can kind of look at this, and and we usually think in terms of an inheritance as like an IRA or some trust that, you know, that gets, that, 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 you know, gets accessed at the bank, and the lawyers come and help divide it up. But not so in the ancient world. You didn't have systems like that in place. In order for the younger son to get his part of the inheritance, property and livestock would have to be sold. Losing that place in the promised land, and diminishing the the overall holdings of the father and the older son. Uh, Some have asserted that this was profoundly insulting to ask for an inheritance early, because it was akin to saying, I wish you were dead and I had your stuff. It's hard to tell for sure whether it was that out of place for something like this to happen, but it's certainly not the norm. It's certainly not the way that you, even in our society, you know, that's an odd thing. Who's going to go and ask their parent, you know, for an early inheritance like that? So the alarming thing in this is that there doesn't seem to be any reaction from the father except to acquiesce, like immediately. No, no objection, no question of this, just this father. And so right off the bat, We have this picture of a father with a long view who knows that there is no return without leaving. There is no resurrection without a death. So we keep reading here, verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out. Oh, I'm sorry. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and began to, and he, and he began to starve. 
He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. The man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please, take me on as a hired hand. Okay, here's the the thing. It's so important. Like right away, we're making connections, I'm sure, as we're reading the story. That's how that works. You know, immediately it's drawing us in. If, if we're thinking at all, we're putting the connections together. But it's so important to read this story from the standpoint of first century Jewish people because there's something else at work in this. These were people who were very steeped in their history and their heritage. And I think that they would have been tracking right along with this story as he's telling it. Remember, the point of the parable is never the stuff that's on the surface of the parable. When they heard the story about two brothers, I'm pretty sure their minds would have gone to Cain and Abel and to Jacob and to Esau, famous tales of brothers throughout their history, throughout their sacred writings, the origins of humanity and the origins of Israel. Jesus is describing a human plight, but he's also describing one that is unique to Israel. In fact, the story actually kind of mirrors what happens between Jacob and Esau and their behaviors. The themes of exile and redemption are all through this story. And I believe his first listeners would have caught uh, that and and would have been agreeing with him, probably nodding in agreement as he's going along. Because in the story, the younger kid follows his hunger. I mean, that's what led him away from the family farm anyway, a hunger for some exotic nutrition that wasn't on his father's table, something else, uh, a gnawing hunger for something different from what was right in front of him. So he's off in a foreign place and he's buying everybody's dinner and he's getting the, the, the latest Xbox and every game that comes out. And he's laying around on the couch all day and, and people are coming in and out and there's an ongoing party and people crashing there all the time. Everybody loves this guy because he's the life of the party. But then the economy hits the skids and he's run through all of his money and suddenly the, the resources are gone and the friends are gone with him. And so he's got to go and get a job. And he can only find the worst one around, slopping pigs, which is interesting. He he convinces a a farmer to hire him on. He's going right back to the thing that he ran away from to begin with. He's ending right back up there. Uh, Yeah, it does ring a bell because that's what my experience was like a lot. But obviously, this was trying to picture the, 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 the worst, the absolute worst situation for a good Jewish boy. I mean, he's working for a Gentile, which is bad enough, but then feeding unclean animals, pigs, that was an abhorrence. I mean, it was about as bad as it could get for this young man. And again, I think Jesus' listeners knew what he was describing. And we've got to think bigger picture as people in Israel would have at that time. This was about Israel's disregard for God and, and God's purposes, which led up to the Babylonian invasion and Israel's exile in Babylon for 70 years in that foreign land. And for many, if not all, in Jesus' time, the fact that Israel was still under the rule of Gentile Roman empires, well, they believed they were still in exile. They believed exile was still happening. 
And so I think the story of the younger kid resonated with everybody listening to him at that time. Because in the story, the kid comes to his senses. And, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't that he suddenly looked around and, and realized that all the stuff he went off to find was just a bunch of empty promises. I mean, certainly it was that. But that's not what motivated his intention to go home. You notice that? Verses 16 and 17, if anybody's got it open still in front of them, in verse 16, what is motivating him? What, what is it? What is the feeling? His stomach. He's hungry. I mean, that's the bottom line for it. He, you know, and, and he remembered that even the hired hands had food enough to spare back home. Hunger drove him away from home. Hunger is leading him back. And there's nothing deep or deserving about this kid. He's just hungry and he wanted to go home. And he's humbled by his experience. He's not expecting full rights as a son. He's willing to, to be a hired hand, you know, just another guy on the farm working, but at least fed. And again, up until this point, the Pharisees are probably tracking with Jesus. They, I think they, they saw Israel as the younger son in this, like the scoundrel Jacob in the Old Testament. And so they would have agreed, yes, those who've become unclean need to return to the house. They need to return to the temple and take whatever place they're afforded. That's what those who are ruining it for the rest of Israel need to do, to, to cooperate with those of us who are doing it right. And, and maybe God will end this time of exile for us. Maybe we can get our act together. But as usual, Jesus upends things. So let's keep reading the story. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. The father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill did I change this yet? And, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. And now he's returned to life. He was lost. But now he's found. So the party began. And as I said, everyone, I think, would have been nodding in agreement with this story as Jesus was going along, right up until he got to the father's reaction to him. This sort of lavish grace, I think, would have been unexpected as part of the story. Not that Israel was unfamiliar with grace. Certainly they knew they were the recipients of God's grace. But just like what happens within the church so often, grace becomes something we give lip service to. Grace is something that becomes a, you know, a platitude. And when grace becomes a platitude, God's, God's character becomes obscured for us. And so when, when the father sees the wayward son returning, he doesn't wait for the son to, to reach him and, and express his remorse or, you know, fall before him. No, he runs to meet him while he's still away off, meaning that he was actively searching, looking for him, waiting for his arrival. And the kid had his speech all rehearsed. Have you ever rehearsed something that you're going to say that's important? I do that all the time. So Robbie will walk in on me. I'm in my room and rehearsing. And who are you talking to? You don't want to know who I was talking to. But there's nobody here. Yeah, they should have been, though. Either way. So he's got his speech all prepared. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. 
doesn't let him finish that speech. He's not going to have any talk of him trying to earn his place as a hired hand. He accepts him back as a fully privileged family member with no strings attached that he announces at all. In fact, he throws a barbecue in to boot. And remember, Jesus was trying to explain why he's eating and accepting, eating, not eating, but eating with, <laughs> eating and accepting such, eating with and accepting sinners. Something was going on that was a reason to celebrate. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. The lost have returned. The, the dead have come back to life. The exile, he's saying, is over. This is cause for celebration. We don't have to earn our place. We don't have to have noble motives at the start. We just have to find ourselves hungry and empty and wanting to come home. It's a, quite a difficult lesson to learn, not just for Pharisees, but for all of us, to realize that our rebellion has no effect on God's love for us. That's the thing that gets so muddled as we try to, to comprehend the grace of a righteous God. How does this work? I mean... We've sinned. We've done things wrong. Does grace mean eh, everything's okay? No, grace means God's love is unmoved and unchanged. But notice, Jesus never suggests that the younger son was fine, just doing all this stuff. Yeah, the younger son, he was cool. Everything was fine. No. He paints a very clear picture of what a selfish temporal pursuit will lead to. A deep dissatisfaction and often a very dehumanized life. He's out ready to eat with the pigs, this guy. So Jesus didn't sugarcoat that. As though God's grace means, you know, nothing matters. Just do whatever you please. No, it matters. It matters. Our lives and our choices matter very much. There are many ways in which we can squander the, the original intent for the life that we've been given We were meant for so much more than just the empty pursuits of lust or greed or the escapism that comes in so many forms inside of a wealthy society like ours. But so often we think that how we live, how we live matters because the more we disobey God, the angrier he gets. That's kind of the way we usually fall into the pattern of thinking. We think that the more we move away from God, well, the more he is just ready to throw us off and and pour his judgment out on us. Often, unfortunately, it even gets expressed by well-meaning people that way. The religious leaders of Jesus' day thought like that. Israel had sinned and gone into exile, so in order to end exile, they had to get things right. They had to double down on their efforts to purify themselves. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not getting it. God loves you. God loves you and nothing is going to change that. Nothing will ever change that. (laughs) There's nothing any one of us could ever do that could change God's love for us. We can't earn it. We can't bargain for it. It's just the reality of who he is. God is love. All that's needed from our part, if we're going to base it on this story, all that's needed is for us to want to come home. All we can do is is fall into those arms of love. 
that was the beautiful thing going on that Jesus was trying to celebrate. And, and that's why he was hanging out with the riffraff. The dead were, were coming back to life. And it wasn't that Jesus was just eating with sinful people. Jesus was, was bringing people back to life because he was eating with them. Because he was demonstrating this love for them, which began to change them. That's the wonderful, almost overwhelming part of this story. The incredible view we get of God's heart for humanity. But it's probably not the main thrust of the story. The main thrust actually appears at the end. The part that really addresses what it was that was going on. The the question that came up, why are you eating with sinners? So let's uh, keep reading. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother's back, he was told. And your father has killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was so overjoyed and happy that this had happened that he couldn't wait to get in. It's a a different translation. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, You've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the older brother, he's out working in the fields, doing his duty, comes in after a long day. The sun's probably setting or set. And as he comes home, he notices a lot of lights at the house, and he's hearing... And there's a, there's a party going on. And so he grabs a nearby farm and says, what's, what's happening up here? And he's saying, dude, your brother, your little brother, he's home. Your dad's celebrating that. That's what's going on. And the older brother stands looking at the house, his mouth hanging open in shock. And then once that wears off, he turns around and, and stomps off to go sulk in the barn. And back at the party... The father looks at his watch and he realizes his older son should be home by now. And he starts looking through the crowd and he doesn't see him. So kind of asks around, anybody seen the older son? And one of the farmers says, yeah, I saw him. He's outside. And so he goes out looking for him. Another, another beautiful picture here. And when he finds him, the older son begins his complaint. All these years I slaved for you. I was a good kid. I did my chores. I never even complained when, when my younger brother vivisected our holdings. And, uh, you know, in all this time, you never even like, like, threw a little Lamberger party for me and my friends or anything. But when this son of yours comes in from his debauchery, he gets a full-blown feast. Listen. He's not wrong in his complaint, right? I mean, there's, there's a certain level in this. You're like, yeah. Uh, but there are so many nuanced turnarounds in this section. Notice how they've reversed places. The younger brother is inside the family dwelling. The older brother is out. And remember what started the story. Remember what's behind it. Remember the question that was asked. 
The older brother feels like he's been treated unfairly. He's, he's been doing things right. But his words here actually portray what's really going on with him. Where the younger brother thought that, that he might be able to return to the father by debasing himself and becoming a, a servant. We see here that the older son never saw himself as a son, but just as a slave to a taskmaster. I've slaved for you all this time. He feels so right and superior to his younger brother because of his contrast of behaviors. He won't even acknowledge him as a brother. You notice that. This, he calls him the son of yours. His disrespect towards his father, his scorn for his brother, reveals that he's just as far from being a good rule keeper as his brother may have been. He had the same kind of delusional hunger that his younger brother had of finding fulfillment through their own efforts, through doing something themselves. But you know what? Maybe the older brother's delusion was worse because he saw himself as right instead of as one needing grace. And the message is right there that self-righteousness is just another form of rebellion against God. The older son felt slighted because he'd been faithful and good and it got him nothing. I, you know, what does doing all this stuff get me? But the lesson in the parable is that no one is truly faithful or righteous. Jesus has asked the question at the outset, why are you hanging out with sinners? As he's hanging out with people who didn't see themselves as such. This was the problem of the Pharisees. That's where it all started. They were mad that Jesus was hanging out with known sinners, the ones responsible for ruining everything for Israel. They felt Jesus should have joined them in doubling down on trying to make God happy, and they thought they could turn things around by how respectable they had become and how purified they had become by excluding everyone they considered impure or sinful. But in this story, both sons were in need of repentance. Both had to turn around and receive the extravagant love that the father was offering. The real lesson in this to me is what it reveals about our father, our creator, God. He's not interested in forming an army of rule keepers. He's not interested in trying to make sure he's got a band of people who are, are as respectable as they can be so they don't embarrass him. He wants a family. And if you've got a family, you know that they're going to embarrass you. That's just the way that goes. He's not concerned about that. When the older, older brother called his younger brother that son of yours, the father reasserts their relationship in verse 32. No, no, no. Your brother was dead. And now he's alive. We've got to celebrate that. God isn't interested in making sure we're right. He wants us to discover that we're loved. That is it. The older son was as clueless as the younger, thinking that his works had earned him a place of privilege within the family. And the father says, no, you're my child. It's always been here for you. You didn't have to try to earn this from me. The love that's pictured here, the patience, the grace, it is extravagant. This is why I call this the story of prodigal grace because God's love is so immense, so relentless, and is given to us on such a lavish scale. 
And here's the thing, no matter who we may identify with in this story, and I know, you know, our, our, our personal histories all can cut both ways on this. So, I mean, you know, whether we identify with the person who fails and falls short or the person who works so hard to keep up a good image and, and look righteous, the bottom line is we are all in need of the love that God offers to us. That love is the only thing that's going to rescue us. God's love is the only thing that will reshape us into the people that we were intended to be. If God's purpose is to form a family, if this is what this is all about, God's trying to draw in this wayward human race in exile. He wants a family again. Then what's our response supposed to be towards those who want to come home? Or or maybe people who would come home if if anyone would extend a hand and welcome them? Should we treat people with suspicion if they disagree with us, if they don't look like us, if they don't vote the way we do? Should we keep them at arm's length? Should we demand that they straighten up before we accept them? Or should we throw a party? That's what the story is asking us to decide. I can't decide it for you. You have to determine that. The parable ends really abruptly, once again, with the father and the older brother still outside together. Nothing is resolved in this. And again, I believe this is intentional so that we are going to provide the ending for this story. Did the younger brother learn from his wild ways? Did he get up the next morning and start doing his chores like he used to do uh, before he had run away? Did he realize the heartache that he had caused and determine in his heart never to scorn his father's love again? Did the older brother reconcile with the younger? Did he forgive him for the losses and learn to view life from the vantage point of the father's love for his family? I don't know. Father went to great lengths to see that this would happen, but, you know, that's the risk the father took. And love is only as real as the risk that it incurs. The question that this story poses to us is will we accept for ourselves and give to others God's prodigal grace and love? Will we accept that we are loved and then determined to show that love to others the same way it was shown to us? Just as we're sitting here this morning, let's take a minute just reflecting on that. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Just sit quietly for a minute. And let's commit our hearts to Christ's love. Let's see to it that we surrender ourselves to him, the good and the bad, all the, the, the hidden things of the heart that no one would ever know about, and all the things that maybe are out there on the surface that everyone knows about. Let's take all of our struggles, let's take our weariness from trying to look good, And let's let that go. Let's let that go into the love of God. And in answer to the questions that seem to roll through our minds as human beings, have I done too much wrong or have I done enough good? In answer to those questions, let's just imagine a father running down the road towards us, arms open wide to gather us in. 
Imagine a father out in the dark with a lamp looking for you to coax you back to a party. Imagine a father who will risk it all, a divine parent whose love knows no bounds, who's looking for you. And believe, believe that that is the heart of God towards you. Believe and receive that you are loved. If you'll believe it, you can change the world. Right on? All right, will you stand with us, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it reveals to us about you. Lord, we, as the human race, have scrabbled across this globe trying to piece together information or ideas about what you're like and who you are. But here, in one concise little story, you reveal something to us that's breathtaking. That you are love. And that your love extended towards us can not only change us, but impact this world for the better. So help us, Father, to be recipients of your love, but help us to be conduits of it as well. Expressing and sharing that with everyone in the world where we've been placed. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.